it's amazing how many behaviors, ways of speaking, ways of living life that are completely acceptable and normal to us. But if we kind of go get on a plane and travel to another part of the world, those very same behaviors go from being perfectly acceptable, fine, and normal to being offensive. Um, One category of these that you might be aware of is hand gestures. Now, I've often wondered why we have different sign languages for different parts of the world. Like, there's American Sign Language, and why can't there just be sign language? Like, it seems to be like something that would be very easy to translate, um, but not, that's not so. Um, but so in our culture, one of the most friendly, like, border, just innocuous, not harmful, not upsetting hand gestures you could possibly give is the good old tried and true thumbs up. I cannot tell you how many cherished memories I have photos that I will look to for my whole life where everyone's just sitting there kind of thumbs up, big smile on their faces, right? Um, But if you go to like the Middle East, some African countries, parts of Italy, that's like the equivalent of giving people the middle finger, which I'm sure you, the middle, I would explain it because I'm sure most of you have never, ever done that before in your life. Good Christian people would surely never do that. Um, Another thing, though, that we often do is our country, the United States of America, we kind of shorthand that and just say, America. We call ourselves Americans. Um, In fact, we're so proud of it, we've even shortened America um, and have a little code name that we use, a little shorthand that we use to celebrate things that are uniquely of the United States culture. Um, We just say, America. You know, we just cut the first A off, America, you know. Uh, We uh, celebrate shooting off uh, 4th of July fireworks, right? America. Uh, You eating a bacon-wrapped turkey leg and some deep-fried butter at the state fair, America, right? There's these things that are like quintessential our culture. You won't find them anywhere else in the world. But if you travel to like Central America, South America, they don't like that we call ourselves Americans. They don't like it that we refer to our country as America because they're like, "Uh, excuse me, America, that's two continents and dozens of countries. You guys don't just get to like own the whole thing, and they think it's very egotistical of us acting as if we're the only ones on the, on, entire, on the entire two continents that matters. And so, like, they don't like that, but here it's common for us to do that. Um, one really interesting way that things get funny around the world is how people handle time. Um, how many of you, this is a little confession here, how many of you are, are of the camp where you're just always late, chronically late everywhere you go? Okay, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm there. I'm raising my hand, not as an example, but as to take the lead. I'm, I'm late. I, I don't know if I was always this way or if it happened when I had kids, but there is something about having kids that like, you just can't get anybody out the door. I mean, I, I wish it was legal to use a little cattle prod on them because that's, I don't know how to get them to put their shoes on or to brush their teeth. It's like, it's, it's like raising these little versions of yourself that do not want to stay alive, and you have to force them to do all the things necessary for life, eat, sleep, and all of that, get clothes on, whatever. Um, And so I'm of the people, I'm always late everywhere I go. I don't love it, okay? Um, But if you go to Germany, and you do not show up at the agreed-upon time that you said you would be there, they find that incredibly offensive. They think you are so inconsiderate for doing that. And some of you who are the on-time people, you're thinking, am I German? Because that's how you feel. 
you get so mad when people show up late because you're, you're there 10, 15 minutes early because, again, if you're not on time, you're late. You want to be there early everywhere you go. And so you kind of look at the people in your life that are always late and you say, shame on you. You are inconsiderate in how you use your time. Um, but here's the thing, though. If you leave Germany and you go to Latin American countries and you show up on time, to them, that's like you showing up an hour early for a party. Like if you show up to their house an hour early or on time for a party at the time they set, they'd think like, why are you here? Like now I have to get ready for things and entertain you. Thanks a lot for giving me more work to do while I'm trying to get things ready. They, like the starting point is like, eh, that's okay when people can start filtering in sometime after that. Fashionably late is the way to go. And then if you head down to the Caribbean, time just doesn't even matter. Like, and so you, those of you, okay, how many on-time people we got? Yeah, it's a little bit more common, right? Yeah, and, you, and I'm just going to say, you guys think you're so much better than us, okay? But I just want you to know, you don't have the corner on the market on time everywhere in the world. There are some few places around the world where being late is the way to go. Um, and we, you what? And they have a lot to learn? Oh, they have a lot to learn. Oh, no. Um, I won't go there. Um, anyway, so what we're doing today is we're going to wrap up this teaching series called Launching the Kingdom, uh, where we have um, been kind of looking at the early days of Jesus' ministry. Uh, we are in this year-long journey through the life of Jesus in the book of Matthew. The, the Gospel of Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Um, there are four Gospels that start the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And a Gospel is simply a biography of Jesus' life. And we have four of them because there were four different perspectives. Um, and this one was written by one of Jesus' disciples, a guy named Matthew, or as he calls himself in this book, Levi. It was not uncommon for people to, in this world to have Hebrew names and a Greek name. Um, like um, when I was in high school and I had to take a Spanish class. Did anybody take Spanish in high school? And, had to, and you got a, like a, they gave you a Spanish name, right? Right? Because apparently like Larry's not Spanish. And so you had to get something else that was a little bit more fancy. So I had to be Antonio because it was like... But that's not my name. I always wondered that, too. We have, why can't sign language be everywhere? And why can't Anthony be my name everywhere? I thought that was strange. Um, but, but anyway, um, so they had, Matthew had a couple different names. And so we are uh, taking a, a look at the very last story in, in what Matthew kind of sets up as like the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And what Matthew's trying to do in these few chapters here of setting up Jesus, the start of his ministry, is he's just given us a nice, well-rounded look at all of the kinds of things that Jesus would do in the next three years. He preaches, he raises up disciples and through deep relationships, and he heals people. And so from um, Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, down to the end of chapter 4, um, that's kind of what's going on. He's showing us kind of a snapshot of what Jesus came to do. Um, we're only going to read the first part of that chunk, though, today. Matthew chapter 4, we'll start in verse 12 and read through verse 17. Now, when he, talking about Jesus, when he heard that John had been arrested, that's John the baptizer, he got arrested, uh, Jesus withdrew into Galilee. He went to the northern part, the northern region of Israel, which was called Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. 
and for those dwelling in the region, and shadow of death, on them light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we get another one of Matthew's kind of statements saying, Hey, Jesus is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, these things that were mentioned hundreds of years ago, Jesus kind of fits that. He's the missing puzzle piece that these old prophecies kind of told us about. He fits the shape that they were like kind of pointing out to us. And the one um, that he mentions here is comes from Isaiah chapter 9, and the whole chapter very much references this coming Messiah, this Messiah that would come and be a Savior. Um, Becky read a chunk earlier from Isaiah chapter 9, and I actually had to read, uh, skip down and read another verse from Isaiah 9, verse 6, because it's one that we read at Christmas. And we all know that that's a Jesus prophecy. For unto us a child is born, for, uh, for a son is born, for unto us a child is given. Maybe it's backwards, I don't know. Um, and the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But before that, there's a lot more that talks about Jesus. And part of it says he's going to be this light to the Gentiles, a light to all people in the northern part of Israel, in Galilee. And the reason that we got those two weird words, Zebulun and Naphtali, or Naphtali, um, is because in the Old Testament, the Israel was broken up into 12 different tribes, different families, and they all got their own little chunk of land in this nation of Israel. Well, the, the tribes of Zebulun and the tribes of Naphtali, that was where they called home, was in those, that little area where Jesus was preaching. So that's why we get those weird words that, again, you will probably never remember how to pronounce. Um, my, my instruction to Becky was say it confidently and no one will know. Like, it's, that's how it is. You get up here, if I'm reading through a genealogy or Bible names, I just say it confidently and you're like, it must be the way it is. Okay, that's fine. So, we start by seeing Jesus beginning his preaching ministry. And what he does is he adopts, he takes on the message that John the baptizer had just a little bit before this in the book of Matthew. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Only now it takes on a little bit more urgency because Jesus is the king of that kingdom. So whereas John was like, coming soon, the kingdom's coming soon, Jesus is going to say, it's here. Another way to, say, uh, to translate it would be, the kingdom of God has drawn near. The, the realm of God is here and now, it is drawn near. Um, and so um, he tells them to repent. Now often when we hear the word repentance, for us that just kind of means to feel sorry, to feel bad about something you've done, to feel guilty about something you've done. But the word translated repentance here means to change directions. It's when your GPS says, hey, you missed a turn, go turn around and head back the right way. It's that kind of a life change. It's not just feeling sorry for something you did. Um, repentance is seeing the thoughts and the behaviors that led you to that bad choice, that led you to that thing that you're, that you're regretful for doing, and just saying, wow, I'm really going the wrong way with my life. I need to turn and move in a different direction. And so I don't make the same you know, mistakes again. It's a complete change of direction, a 180-degree turn, um, walking in a new and different way. Um, 
it feels to me like we just finished the Christmas season because the older I get, the faster time flies. Um, I saw somebody put up the other day like, only 40-something weeks till Christmas. And I was like, only? Like that's going to be here before we know it again. Um, but time flies so fast. So anyway, we just got done with Christmas season. And there are about a dozen movies you can watch that are some version of uh, a Christmas Carol. You know, the Ebenezer Scrooge story and the ghost Christmas past, present, and future. That whole thing, right? Um, although I will tell you, the official undisputed best version of that story is a Muppet Christmas Carol. Because there is something about Michael Caine acting and playing the role as seriously as if he was in a Shakespearean play while surrounded by Muppets that is just, chef's kiss, the perfect version of it, right? And um, what I think about the Christmas story that's so good is it shows us what repentance truly is. You see, over the course of the story, you see Ebenezer Scrooge come to realize the, the damage that he's been doing with his lifestyle, the consequences of his actions. He doesn't just see the pain he's caused, but he says, I can't live in this direction anymore. So it's not that he just becomes the more cheerful, slightly less stingy person by the end. No, he's giving to the people he's robbed. He's, he's being overly generous and showing kindness and love to the people he's withheld that from all of his life. He's trying to completely change the way he lives. He's not just sorrowful and regretful. It leads to a full-on new direction for his life. That's the idea of repentance that is talked about anytime when Jesus talks about it or anyone in the New Testament talks about it. It's you realizing, I need to shift where I'm going. And Jesus and John don't just tell us to repent, but they also give us the reason why. They say, you need to repent because the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, has drawn near to you. Uh, The implied idea is that you need to turn from the way you're living because the way you're living, the way you're thinking, the way you're acting, the way you're speaking is not compatible with the new life in the new kingdom that Jesus came to bring. And so if you look at the people that were coming in droves to John and then were coming to Jesus to hear him preach, like, I think, like, what were they doing that they needed to repent of? Because um, when you get to most of the non-religious leader people in the New Testament, like, Jesus doesn't have a lot of bad, rough things to say to them. Like, he's really hard on the religious leaders. I get why he would tell them to repent, but what about all the normal people? What was going on for these people that made them have to repent or else they wouldn't fit in the kingdom that Jesus came to bring? Well, One of the things to know about the Israelites at this point in time is they were just angry. Just, there was this seething undercurrent of anger throughout all of the people. Because Israel had once been a proud, powerful, rich, independent nation. But by the time Jesus shows up on the scene, it had been centuries since they were an independent nation. They had been conquered by bigger nations and kind of... Um, traded around to whichever nation was the biggest point, whichever empire was the biggest at the time. And so by the time Jesus shows up, it's Rome. The Roman Empire was the biggest, strongest thing in the world at the time. And so not only was Israel not their own nation, they were just like some side territory on the gigantically huge and powerful Roman Empire. And so all of the Israelites, though, they wanted to go back to their glory days. You know, they were like us when we look back at, well, man, if I could go back to high school and play that game again. play. You know, I was um, at the game, the basketball game in New Berlin on uh, Friday, and uh, Jude noticed that 
Alex, our oldest, his, he's on the record board there for the 300 high, or 300 meter hurdles, and he was so impressed. And I just, it made me think, I ran hurdles in high school, and I started thinking, man, I remember that feeling of being on the starting line and running, oh, I'd love to go back and do that again. Of course, if I tried to jump over one now, everything would break. Like, muscles would snap off the bone, it would be a catastrophe, right? But I would love to go back for one minute to be in that kind of shape. I mean, I want to go back to those glory days, right? They wanted to go back to an age when they were the most powerful, most prestigious nation in the world. They were like the crown jewel of all the nations. They had money, they had power, they had security, all of it. And they wanted to go back, and so they saw what they used to be, and they saw that now they had kind of this invading, occupying force, that they had Romans all around them, forcing them to live Roman ways of life, having their very lifestyle change, rules imposed upon them, overbearing taxes imposed upon them, and they hated it. And they wanted to kick out these Romans so badly so that they could once again be a powerful nation. And again, they had a right, right to be mad. Rome was known for their cruelty and brutality. They were just nasty to the things they did. I mean, they did things uh, that were so over the top so that like, if, if they went to punish one group of people or one little territory... They wanted to make it so nasty and so bad that everybody else that ever thought about rebelling would be like, nope, not doing that. Um, never, never doing that. It's kind of like how um, Abby, growing up, we were talking with her mom, and it's like, did it? And, you know, somebody asked the question, Mom, did you ever give me a spanking? Abby asked her mom that. And uh, Janet said, no, I spanked your older sister once, and you saw it, and you thought, I don't ever want to mess with that. And so Abby was just like this nice, perfect little kid um, her whole life because of that. Um, and so that's kind of how Rome wanted to deal with things. They wanted to drop the hammer so that everybody else was too scared to do anything. But the Israelites were so sick of them being there. And they saw their glory days. In fact, their scriptures, the religious scriptures that defined their very way of life, spoke all about those glory days and their independence. And so they were constantly looking at it, thinking about it, reflecting on it. And what that happened was, is Israel became like the most pesky thorn in the side of Rome. They're, they were constantly having uprisings and rebellions where they'd get rally the troops and they'd try to do something and then Rome would smash them down and they'd go and lick their wounds for a little bit and then about 10, 15 years later they'd come back and try it again. And it got so constant and, Israel, and, and Rome got so sick of it that in the year 70 AD they came in and pretty much flattened Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple and destroyed Israel's way of life and said enough is enough. And so Jesus, when he shows up on the scene, it's before Jerusalem gets destroyed, but there's that seething undercurrent of, we hate these people, we want them out. And this had been going on for so long that they had started letting that anger and their desires to be free affect their promise that God had given them that one day he would send them a savior. And they started to say, well, the savior is going to save us from the things we want here and now. He's going to save us from Rome. He's going he's gonna to give us all of the political and military freedom that we've ever wanted. And so the, the, the Messiah, the Savior they were looking for and waiting for was somebody who was big and strong and charismatic and tough. Somebody who could rally the troops, who could stand there and give a Mel Gibson, William Wallace-style speech in front of the troops and have everybody throw their swords in the air and say, yeah, and, and dive into battle and win. That's what they were waiting for. And then Jesus shows up, and he didn't do any of that stuff. He didn't fit the mold that they were expecting. He shows up at this time where there's all this simmering anger toward Rome and the people around them. And he sees that they want to build a kingdom. They want to, they want to build a new Israel uh, independent nation through violence, through anger, through power. 
And it's, again, so overtaken that it's colored the very way they see everything. And Jesus says, well, we're not here to do any of that. That's not the kind of kingdom I came to bring. He came in to usher a kingdom that would work according to different principles, not earthly principles of might makes right, of violence and power and um, glory, that kind of glory from battle. Uh, The kingdom these people were hoping for and craving was incompatible with the kingdom that Jesus came to bring. The, the things that were simmering in their heart, the desires of their heart, were incompatible with the new way of life that Jesus came to usher in. They were living and responding to the world in ways that were not according to what Jesus wanted people to live by. They were fighting darkness with darkness. And they were just adding more darkness, fighting this dark, oppressive power of Rome. And Jesus didn't come to bring a kingdom of darkness or even double darkness. He came to bring a kingdom of light and freedom, but not in the way they were thinking. And so if they're going to follow Jesus, if they're going to be a part of his new kingdom, what he's saying is you guys are going to have to change your hearts. You're going to have to let go of this simmering hatred and this anger that has been going on inside of your hearts for generations. You're going to have to let go of your desire to be powerful, to be independent like you once were. You're going to have to let go of this desire to go back to your glory days. And this brings us to what makes following Jesus so incredibly difficult, it's that following him requires us completely surrendering our identities or everything about who we are inside and out. He wants us all to lay that down to him so that he can then reshape us the way we need to be reshaped. He wants us to submit our whole selves to be remade in his image. He wants to reshape the deepest parts of who we are because so often what we crave, what we want, what we dream about having, it is completely opposite of the direction that he wants us to go. There are so many ways that we live, things that are normal, things that are encouraged, but they're incompatible with life in the kingdom. Just like you, do, you can't go across the world and give everybody a thumbs up, there are certain ways that we think and we live and we act that, are, that are, feel good right now, and everybody's going to think they're normal. But for the kingdom of God to be a citizen in the kingdom of God, they do not fit. They cannot be okay. Things like our constant focus on pleasure and security and the feeling that we deserve an easy, pain-free life and that surely that's what God wants to give us. That's never taught in Scripture. And oftentimes... Walking constantly towards pleasure will lead you away from where God wants you to go. Walking towards easiness is going to be walking away from where God wants you to go. Um, I think the hyper-political obsession of our day that is leading us to now reshape our faith beliefs in spite of, it, to, to line up better with our political beliefs or the party that we follow, that's not how Jesus' kingdom is going to operate. Following him has got to be our first priority above all things. And so this means that when I come to Jesus, and when you come to Jesus and say, I want to be a part of your kingdom, I want to follow you with my life, it means that we must give him our lives, lay them down and say, make me what you will. Take the parts of me, and if there's anything that's good and honorable that needs to grow and be more more fruitful, grow it. But if there's parts of me that are only going to help sin live in me and are going to take me away from the life you want for me, Jesus, then burn those away. Take those characteristics out of my heart. Take those desires and show me how foolish they are. Show me that they must be left behind. Because the kingdom of God is a different thing than anything we've ever seen or anything we've ever known. And if I want to be a citizen of that kingdom, then I have to be different. 
And if you want to be a citizen of that kingdom, you have to be different. And there's going to be some thoughts, behaviors, and actions that I feel Jesus calling me to leave behind. And most people, you know, would look at those thoughts and actions and behaviors and say, that's fine. You're fine. Just What's wrong with that kind of stuff? You're okay. In fact, people are going to be like, you don't, you don't do that anymore? That's weird. Everybody else does it. Why won't you do it? That's weird. Um, my kids, the constant battle we have now is um, with bad language in TV shows. You can't, you can't, get it, you can't escape it. Um, I mean, you've got to watch like the most preschool of preschool shows, essentially, to escape any sort of bad language. And so when they're kids, you just kind of start by saying, we don't say those words. And then at some point, they get enough to say, like, well, if we don't say those words, why do we watch shows with those words in them? Boy, when, you're, when you, like, as a parent, that's like a whole new level of, like, okay, i got to change my canned response from we don't watch those shows to, oh, no, you are actually thinking intellectually about this and morally about this, and I've got to bring another, you know, thing. And so we've, got, we've been talking about, like, well, here's why we don't talk that way. Okay, here's why you don't hear your dad curse eight times when he hits himself with a hammer or stubs his pinky toe for the eight millionth time in his life. Like, here's why we don't do those kinds of things. And so we've got to, and again, most people in our world, that's just what they do, and that's just what they say, and it's just how people talk, and it's just normal. That's why it's in all the shows, because it's so normal. And most people are like, what are you, goody two-shoes? Like, usually telling people I'm a pastor is a good enough pass for them to be like, oh, okay, I get it, but... Most of the time, when you don't talk certain ways, people think you're weird. And so we must let go of a lot of the ways that we live to follow Jesus. Um, and so let's just, I'll just look at my life. Um, like pretty much everyone else, I have the tendency to dislike people who aren't like me. You know, I have the tendency to drive through certain parts of town and to think I'm better than the people who live here. And sometimes it's through the rich parts of town because I'm thinking, what a waste of money. These people could be helping a lot of people with all this money. Sometimes it's through poor neighborhoods where I'm like, if these people could just use their money responsibly, they'd probably get themselves out of this pit that they're in. And, and there's that tendency inside of me to, to judge anybody who's not like me. Um, I have the tendency um, towards people who have certain political views that are so opposite of me to just assume they must be morally bankrupt. There must just be something so morally broken in their brain because I can't see even relate to how they got to that conclusion. So there must be something wrong with them. I see people with radically different views on things like sexuality and gender, and I see how strongly these things are often pushed in our culture nowadays, and I just feel anger start to rise up towards anyone who believes that or ascribes to those ways of living. And the way our culture has been just kind of whipped up into an angry frenzy the last decade, um, I know I'm not the only one who does this. We are kind of getting programmed to get angry at the people that aren't like us, who see the world from a different direction. But I'll tell you, my feelings of superiority and anger and disdain will never lead me to respond the way Jesus wants me to respond. Uh, I have this, again, tendency to think, surely I'm ahead of these people in my line to get into the kingdom. Surely I'm closer to the front of the line than these people who are way worse than me because they don't live like me. And obviously, I'm right, and they're all wrong. This sense of superiority uh, does not bode well for kingdom living. Because when you read the New Testament, the only people that Jesus consistently chewed out and shut up 
with his arguments were the people who thought they were better than everybody else, were the people who got angry at sinners who thought Jesus was a fool for spending time with drunks and prostitutes and tax collectors who were ripping off their own family members. The only people that Jesus ever seemed to have these harsh, ultra-harsh words for were the people who walked around with that superiority in their heart. And again, I have this tendency to write off people people who Jesus loves. I have a tendency to hate people that Jesus loves, people that he came to die for and reach for. Are they perfect? No. Do they have, are they sinless? No, that's not what I'm saying. But they'll need to surrender their identity to Jesus just like I do. But those parts of me that live inside of me that kind of build the way I look at myself and build my personality, those things that exist in me, they must be surrendered to Jesus so that he can remake them in his image. No matter how right I think I am, I must repent of my ways, and I'm not the only one. This applies to every area of our lives. Uh, For guys, the idea of what it means to be a man in our society, or at least in our area. Um, We want to be self-sufficient. We want to be strong. uh, We don't ever want to show weakness. Um, And so a lot of guys, we build our our lives on this. This pillar of our personality is I'm strong. I'm self-sufficient. I help people, but I don't ever receive help because that looks like weakness. That idea of manliness must be put before the feet of Jesus, and he needs to work on that because weakness is not a sin. Needing help is not a sin. Being humble enough to know when you've got a problem and when you need to repent and and ask Jesus for help, that is a gift of the kingdom. That is a gift of him, his reshaping work. And so we've got to bring that to him. The idea of what it means to be a woman, that's something that has to be laid at the feet of Jesus. Um, I know a lot of women feel like they have to always be helping, always meeting everyone's needs, making sure everyone's okay, being strong and holding everything together for people. Even that idea that I have to be the savior of my family, the savior of the people in my life, that has to be laid before the feet of Jesus because there's only one savior. And I'm sorry, you're really good at what you do, but it's not you. Um, Are you brash and confident, always speaking your mind and telling the truth, even if it hurts people's feelings, and you've built your personality on being the one who says what other people are too scared to say? That needs to be laid before Jesus because... um, Jesus says he comes with a balance of grace and truth. Um, And some people are all truth, and they use that truth like a hammer. And that's not, again, the way Jesus wants us to live. Have you been abused and hurt, and you have these wounds in you that have shaped your life with anger towards those who caused those wounds and caution toward other people, and you don't trust easy, and you keep everyone at arm's length? Well, Jesus wants you to surrender that identity to him so that he can... Enter your life, heal your wounds, replace your hatred with forgiveness, and help you trust people, the right people, again. Have you been snared by a sinful addiction? Well, it's been around so long in your life that you don't even know what life looks apart from that addiction. Again, he wants you to come to him and say, this is something that's been a part of me, and it's been my identity for so long, Jesus, I don't even know what to do. And you let him show you a better way forward, a way to be free and show you what life can look like beyond the chains of your sin. This kind of repentance and being willing to turn away, to walk away from not just the, the, you know, the actions that get you in trouble with people, but to say, is the very way I'm thinking, is the very attitude of my heart wrong and sinful? That level of repentance is what is needed to follow Jesus. Because Letting go of those deeply set patterns is how we get to break free from sin and walk in the newness of life that he has for us. Because the kingdom 
of heaven has drawn near in Jesus. And that means a lot of who we are and a lot of the way we live needs to be left behind. We live in earthly ways that do not fit with the kingdom of heaven. And I don't want to find out one day that I got locked outside the kingdom because I wanted to hold on to my pride, because I wanted to appear not weak to people. I don't want to find out that I didn't make it in because I wanted to hold on for my hatred for a certain category of people in our society or because I was unwilling to admit my need for help. Now, one thing that can help us in this journey to be shaped by Jesus is, um, like I said, we repent. We say, I don't need to go that way anymore. But then we turn and we're like, okay, then what do I do? Some of us have been thinking that way so long and living that way so long, we don't know any other way. That's why we often have these moments in life where we're like, I'm going to be different. And we take a few steps the other way, and then we just kind of slowly drift back the way we've always gone. It's just hard. We don't know what else to do. Well, the New Testament helps us see various practices, like almost like spiritual exercises that we can bring into our lives that help shape us into the image of Jesus and show us what life in him looks like. Um, this year, uh, we have um, the season of Lent. Now, we're not the most uh, liturgical of churches. Christian churches tend to be pretty free and loose with a lot of this stuff. Um, but there is some benefit to, I think, some of these ancient practices that have been going on for hundreds of years. And the season of Lent is the 40 days leading up to Easter, where we kind of take a month plus and just kind of focus our eyes on what Jesus did for us, who he is, and change our lifestyle accordingly in small ways. Um, now, what some, people, what some churches have tended to do is they just say, okay, for Lent, I'm going to give up something. Okay? Um, some people, it's chocolate. Some people, it's online shopping, whatever it might be. Um, what I want to encourage us to do as we get into the Lent season in a couple of weeks is I want to encourage you to choose one spiritual practice, one spiritual discipline to add to your life in some level. Okay, I'm not telling you to become a monk for 40 days. I don't care how small you start, but to add some spiritual practice to start helping you shape your life and your mind and your heart to be like Jesus as you lead up to Lent. It could be something like scripture memorization. Lent's six-ish weeks long. You could say, over Lent, I'm going to memorize these six verses of scripture. If you want help picking them out, I'll help you pick them out, whatever it might be. Um, it might be taking a weekly Sabbath to remind you that you're not in control and that God is in control, and that you can take a break, and he'll still be on duty, and life will go okay even when you're not at the wheel. Um, maybe you just say, I'm going to commit to spending five minutes in prayer every day on the 40 days leading up to prayer. Maybe you say, I'm going to spend five to ten minutes reading scripture every day leading up to Easter. Um, so I know a lot of you said that you were going to do Bible reading. That was your New Year's resolution. You started in January. Well, we're in February. Statistically speaking, 92% of you that made that promise haven't followed through with it, okay? Here's your chance to get back on the horse and get it going again, okay? Um, you could do something like fasting. That's something we almost never talk about anymore in our culture. Um, Abby and I did it last year for Easter, it, uh, in Lent leading up to Easter. Not the whole time, mind you, but one day a week. And we started small, like eight hours here and built up to a 24-hour period. And we're planning on doing that again. Um, maybe you say, I'm going to start serving somewhere during Lent. I'm going to have a, day, a daily act of being generous to people. All of these things can be shaping ways where you say, I'm not looking at life through what I want, but through what Jesus wants for me. And so uh, Lent starts on Valentine's Day. 
so you can declare your love to follow Jesus by adding the spiritual practice. So next week, um, we're going to have a way for us to kind of say, this is what I'm doing. Make your challenge, make your claim, pick your spiritual discipline for the next 40 days and add it. I mentioned it today. I'm mentioning it today, so you've got a whole week to think about which one you want to do. Okay? And again, if you're like me, you want to shoot for the stars. Okay? And that's a recipe for disaster and failure. I encourage you, start small. But the goal is, is to remind ourselves, get ourselves in the mindset that we must surrender who we are to Jesus inside and out. Because he has given us so much to free us from sin, to break our, our, the chains that hold us to, to being very earthly-minded and not heavenly-minded. Uh, he gave his life so that we could break free from the lies of sin and drop the fake masks that we wear to say, I'm okay, I don't need help, I don't need anything, I don't have any sin in my life, I'm fine. He died so that we could let go of all that stuff and be free to him and free to our church family and find change and find hope. He died so that we might be able to walk in newness of life. And so often we look at the newness and we say we want it, but we walk in very old paths. His hands are open and outstretched to each and every one of us, welcoming us to him. We just have to be willing to do what it takes to follow him. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this chance to be reminded that so much of what we have kind of just assumed was normal and natural is not the way you want us to live. I, I just pray that our hearts and minds would be open to the idea that, you know, what's normal, it might not be okay. And sometimes it is, sometimes normal is fine in various aspects, but there's a lot of ways where following you, Jesus, following the path the Spirit is leading us down is not, um, it, it's just not what our world is going to encourage us to do. It's going to be different. Nobody in our world encourages us to be radically forgiving, but you do. No one in our world encourages us to be ridiculously generous, but you do. Nobody in our world is telling us to put other people first. Our world tells us to put ourselves first above all things. But you call us to live a selfless, servant-minded life. And so I just pray that we would just kind of start challenging what's normal, our normal ways of thinking, our normal ways of looking at the world, so that we might understand that you're preparing us for a, a different kind of kingdom and that we can be good citizens of that kingdom here and now by surrendering ourselves to be changed and molded and reshaped into the likeness of Jesus. So, Father, help us today to be um, open to that. And as we move into a, a season, as we kind of get on the runway leading up to Easter, that this would be a good season to be kind of, to just take a moment to be aware, to be self-reflective, and to be intentional about letting you work in our hearts for this season. It's such a, a beautiful gift that we get these opportunities all the time, and that even when we mess up, you love us anyway, and your mercies are new every morning. So thank you for giving us grace um, when we don't always follow the right way we need to go. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.